This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. What did we learn this year? What questions did we answer? And what were some of our favorite lessons from 2022? Well, we'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. favorite things to do at the end of the year is reflect on some of the lessons I've learned on this podcast. And 2022 was quite a year. From talking about fast fashion to navigating through Mercury retrograde, understanding love languages, revisiting Watergate, catching catfish, going back in time to Woodstock 1969, to monitoring the monkeypox outbreak. It was a lot. And that's not even everything we covered. And despite all the many questions this past year brought to us, you have all been right there on time for class every week. But just in case some of you were snoozing through part of these lesson plans, let's do a little recap. I thought before we fully embrace this new year, why don't we start back in January? It's been a while, so we might all need a little refresher because that is when we learned about fast fashion with the CEO of Remake the World, Aisha Barenblatt. Let's start with fast fashion. This is just something that has become a trend in recent years, and people might not necessarily recognize the term Aisha, but if they look in their closets, I'm I'm sure that they'd recognize a few pieces that are fast fashion. So what exactly is fast fashion? Yeah, you know, the way our clothes have been coming to us has really been sooner, faster, cheaper, I'd say, especially since the 1960s. You know, before the 60s, people mostly made their clothes at home or it came from small workshops. Then, you know, we started to have more of this culture of embracing cheaply made clothes that follow trends. And one of the ways that, you know, we were able to get these clothes to us cheaply and quickly was essentially by outsourcing labor. So a lot of jobs, we lost them here in America. They headed out overseas, you know, essentially to exploit labor over there. I'd say H&M and Zara are probably the, the ones who created fast fashion. So if anyone has, you know, Zara or H&M in their closet, they were really the pioneers of getting us affordable, trendy clothes. And I'd say 90s, early 2000s is really when we saw this meteoric rise, right? Rather than mall brands, we were suddenly getting these clothes that were so cheap, so fast, so trendy. Um, and there is, I know we'll get into it, a lot of controversy around switching all of this production overseas, losing jobs right here at home, and the devastating impact that this has Mm. on people and the planet. Yeah, you you talk about the labor. Um, I want to get into that a little bit more. So why is fast fashion so cheap? You kind of answered it there, but I just want to expand on that a little bit more. cost of clothes today and, you know, discount for inflation and think about what our grandmother paid for it. We're actually paying for clothes a lot less 
um, then we should. And so the thing I love to say is, well, the price of exploitation is reflected in the clothes. You know, today, even though Zara and H&M were sort of the pioneers of saying in 15 days from a designer's mind, we're going to get clothes to our shelves, we now have what we call ultra-fast fashion brands, right? Boohoo, Misguided, Sheen. And these clothes are, you know, some of them are priced at 2 3 $4. And so there is just no way for them to come from the long routes, mostly in Asia here, without there being a downward depression on wages. And so whether mm-hmm. it's warehouse workers right here at home or retail workers or workers overseas working in factories, what they have found is the cheaper our clothes become, the less and less their paycheck becomes in terms of being able to afford a decent life. Right. Yeah. And that's something that's come to our awareness, too. And more recently, as people become more um, aware of of things that are happening overseas. And and it's really great that we're shedding more light on that and kind of participating in this shift. Um, So you talk about the cheap labor. Does the actual fabric change at all? Is it is it worse quality? Absolutely. You know, one thing that you said, Abby, what's interesting to know is, you know, if you want to see sweatshops, you don't have to go overseas. I can show you sweatshops right here at home. You know, there are poor working conditions in the Carolinas, in Texas, in uh, New York, in California. Those are some of the places where we still produce. Although, sadly, we lost a lot of that production, you know, when clothes became cheaper and faster. But the thing is, it's a lot of these brands practices, right? Like commercial practices that result in these rock bottom wages. And so it's somewhat times this myth that the bad conditions only happen abroad. You know, there are just as many sweatshops and poor working conditions right here at home because the company's business practices are the same. You know, you've got these billionaires up top who are really able to capture most of this multi-trillion dollar industry's profits. And what you have is a race to the bottom when it comes to wages. And, you know, you asked another very important question, which is how else do we cut corners, right? Because there's no way for us to make clothes this cheap uh, without cutting corners, also in terms of the fabric. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if any of you go into your closet and take a look, I reckon you wouldn't find a lot of pure cotton. You know, back in the day when it was just cotton on our bodies, it probably felt better. Um, But it was also, it is also more sustainable in that, Um, we hadn't seen as much rise in polyester. Today, if you look at your closets, almost everything will either be polyester or polyester blend, which is essentially plastic. Um, And that's been one of the ways that the industry has been able to make things cheaper and faster is by mixing fabrics. And the problem with polyester is, you know, you ever put a plastic bottle in a landfill, it doesn't break down. So if you've got polyester in your clothes, it's essentially sitting in landfills for hundreds of years or it's bleaching into our soils, into our oceans. And so there's just a lot of planetary impact as well when it comes to fast fashion. All right. Another January lesson I enjoyed was my conversation with one half of the Astro Twins, Tali Edut on Mercury Retrograde. For the listeners who might not know exactly what it actually means for Mercury to be in retrograde, can you just walk me through that to start? Absolutely. Well, so Mercury 
is very close to the sun. It takes 88 days to make an orbit around the sun versus Earth, which is 365. So so they're moving at different speeds. Mercury is a lot faster. And so it's going to zip past the Earth a few times a year in its orbit just because of the way it, you know, planets sync up. And when it does, it's almost like two trains moving at different speeds. It's like this illusion that Mercury is going backwards in the sky from our vantage point here. Now, of course, we know that's not true, but it does appear to go backwards and it goes backwards through the zodiac. So it's almost like everything that Mercury is legendarily associated with in astrology, which is transportation, communication, data, information, social, the way we socialize casually with each other, all tends to go backwards. And so that's why oftentimes it may explain why these are notorious periods for all of our communication devices, phones and computers to go on the fritz. You scheduling gets screwed up. Um, old people from our past show up, you know, to if there's unfinished business and communication, they'll reappear and we'll have to deal with it again. So that's the broad, you know, so that's kind of how it works. Now, I'd love to debunk the fear of a retrograde planet if we may today. Let's debunk <laughs> it because it's it does. It's scary when you think about, OK, Mercury's going to go into retrograde. Everyone gets really stressed. And I feel like you put more pressure on yourself that something bad is going to happen. And that causes as much stress as the actual thing that happens. It's true. But, you know, the bad things that happen might actually be you know, blessings in disguise. For example, we <clears throat> realized that we needed to have uh, a stronger security setting on our website as a result of that. So I brought in the developers to do a CAPTCHA and a two, you know, authenticator, second, whatever it is, you know, dual authentication sign in. So, you know, there may be the wiring in your office was faulty and going to short out and it needed to be fixed anyways. So <laughs> that's I, I love that. That's such a positive spin because it kind of goes into the broader picture of, OK, anytime something bad happens, something good will come out of it or God's teaching you a lesson or, you know, something yeah. is happening. And, and you said it perfectly, a blessing in disguise. Yeah, I mean, who knows that that light switch could have shorted and caught on fire or something or shorted out the whole building, you know, so it is, you know, I mean, literally all the pandemonium and panic about 5G taking down the, the airplanes. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. a day like. All like, why would you roll this out during Mercury retrograde? It was like right at the beginning <laughs> of it. I mean, there's some things we can't expect, bad things that just can't be explained, like car accidents or things, you know, that, you know, we can never really see as a blessing in disguise. But right. I think I try to think of retrogrades as review periods when we real. I mean, we're so used to just going, going, going and diving right in headlong. And it's like these are times where we have to stop and think about what we're doing. And that is where we don't like to be inconvenienced by that. But it's it's like when we do have, take the time to stop and reflect, we can really come back three weeks later. So all Mercury retrogrades last for three weeks. We can we can come back three weeks later with a stronger strategy in place. 
While we learned about how the stars influence our relationships, we later spoke with psychotherapist Dr. Christy Overstreet in February about what people are talking about when they bring up love languages. I guess what is important about identifying your own love language when you enter, let's say, a romantic relationship? Well, it's our responsibility as we enter into that relationship to tell that person what our needs, wants, and desires are. It's up to us to figure out how we want to receive love, not them, because I do believe it's our personal responsibilities, how we show up in a relationship. We have to bring our half and we have to be our healthiest self. So when we know what love languages mean the most to us, and maybe that dominant one or that two that feels really good for us, why not make the relationship a lot easier by saying, hey, I really like to receive physical touch or I really like it when you tell me how much you care about me or when you put your phone down and spend time with me. It's almost like the easy button in some relationships because you're taking out all that guessing and it shows that you have strength in yourself and you know who you are. I mean, and what can, a gift to give to that new partner. Totally. I mean, can I tell someone all five? Because all five sound really nice to me. <laughs> Absolutely. I would encourage you to put them in uh, descending order, though. That would be helpful. There we go. I love it. I love it. All right. I have that in my head then. All right. We've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. Uh, What's the psychology behind love language? I'm curious about this because you are a psychotherapist and you, you know, can kind of look into someone's brain and how their behaviors and all of that. So how does that play into love languages? We want to feel safe and secure as humans, and we want to know that we belong and are connected. And when we're safe and secure, we can be vulnerable and we can be vulnerable and we get to trust and trust comes along with vulnerability. And for us to be safe in our relationships, whatever that relationship may be, that vulnerability and trust is crucial. And the love languages helps us have this empathy towards ourselves as well as other people uh, that we're connected to. And it gives that personal growth when we're able to say, Hey, I really like this means a lot to me, this specific love language. Then we feel like, Hey, I know myself very well. And I'm giving you this gift of getting to know me as well. And you can learn to really show love and share love in these different meaningful ways with one another. And it also helps really create this intimacy and this connection that we need within ourselves and in relationship. All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. In June, we took a deep dive into the Watergate scandal, learning about one of the most notorious events in the United States political history. To do that, we caught up with a research specialist for the Miller Center at the University of Virginia, Ken Hughes. What was finally then, I don't know if I want to ask this just yet because I have more questions, but I do want to know because I'm curious, what was the last straw that led Nixon to go, all right, I'm going to resign? Um, there were there were a few things that happened in the summer of 72. The Supreme Court 
ruled unanimously against him that he had to turn over his tapes to the Watergate special prosecutor because they were criminal evidence. Nixon did not see that coming when he when he started recording his conversations. It, you know, it had never happened before, but the Supreme Court was unanimous that uh, in a criminal investigation, the president, like any other American citizen, is obligated by the law to turn over evidence of criminal wrongdoing. Um, one of those tapes was the, uh, the June 23rd, 1972 tape that became known as the smoking gun tape. Um, and Nixon, when he read a transcript of it, realized, you know, it, it made it clear that he had committed obstruction of justice, though he had been denying that uh, all along. Um, and that that by itself wasn't necessarily a fatal blow. Uh, tapes that came out earlier in 1972 showed that uh, Nixon had approved the uh, raising and paying of hush money to keep people from testifying uh, about what they knew regarding uh, the the broader Watergate scandal, all the abuses of power, and uh, that that you know eventually got put under the umbrella umbrella term of Watergate. But um, what really made the difference was when he talked to Republican leaders from the Senate. In order to hold on to his job, Nixon had to retain the support of 34 senators. And um, he talked with uh, Senate leaders, uh, including Barry Goldwater, who was, you know, the conservative leader at the time. And Goldwater said to him, you know, I'm not sure you're going to get uh, enough votes for you to remain in office. And I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to vote to keep you in office. And once Nixon heard that, he realized that he was going to lose the presidency one way or another. So that was what made up his uh, mind to resign. Now, I'm sure we all remember the monkeypox outbreak this past summer, which sparked mass global hysteria and left the world with many questions. So to answer some of those questions, we spoke with the director of the Center of Infection and Immunity at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University, Dr. W. Ian Lipkin. Well, you know, this is an important topic because it's, uh, you know, essential that people kind of know what's going on. That way they can protect themselves in whatever way uh, is necessary. So I'm glad we're doing this. Let's just start with a timeline. Um, you know, just begin with those cases in the UK. When did the monkeypox come to the US and what did early data say and what has since been corrected? We don't know when it first came to the United States. This is very common with these sorts of emerging infections. We almost always miss the first few cases, but it's been around now for several weeks. We first became aware of it because there were these two uh, festivals where it appeared there was one in Europe, there was one um, which was actually in Belgium, there was another one in, uh, in an island off of Spain. It almost certainly spread very, very rapidly thereafter. It probably has been here for at least two months, but we don't actually know the precise date. So then what did um, what early data 
did were we told them, you know, how it started? Did anything change just through the last few weeks, the last month, or is everything the same as it was that we were first told? No, it hasn't. Um, it would be, uh, there's no way I can say that it's the same because obviously it's spreading very, very rapidly. But mm-hmm. what typically happens with these types of infectious diseases is that it originates somewhere else. Occasionally it arrives in the U.S. first. But most times it winds up being imported here. And we see the first clusters in the particular population, and then it begins to expand. Now, the first clusters that we observed in Europe were in festivals where people were engaged in sort of intimate behavior, but there was frankly a lot of promiscuity. And this results in exposure. Uh, And as these people who've congregated from all over the world in these single locations wind up returning home, they bring this virus with them. Mm. Uh, This is something that we've seen before with SARS, we've seen with influenza, but in this case, it's a it's a different sort of disorder. What's different about it? Just the the nature of what exactly it is. I mean, this is actually probably a good time to go through what exactly is monkeypox. Sure. So this is not a virus that spread uh, primarily by the respiratory route. This is spread as a result of either skin to skin contact or some sort of contact with something that has been contaminated because it's come into contact with skin or what we call the mucous membranes, which is the your mouth or your nose or, or frankly, you know, your urogenital tract or even your rectum. Um, so it spread, I wouldn't call it strictly speaking a sexually transmitted disease, though it can be spread that way, but it can be spread just by skin to skin contact. And because the virus can live on surfaces for some period of time, you can become infected if you come into contact with infected bedclothes or sex toys or a variety of other sorts of things that might carry the virus for up to several hours. Look, our summer vacation was still full of exciting lessons. And speaking of excitement, we hopped in a time machine with University of Central Florida Associate Professor of Music, George Waramchuk, who talked us through the iconic Woodstock 1969 festival. So then how do you think Woodstock has changed the music industry? You talk about Santana and then I also, my mind goes to current festivals that kind of are like Woodstock, um, like Coachella. There's a country version, Stagecoach, but Coachella probably is more like Woodstock just from what you've explained. Um, Yeah, there's also Bonnaroo, which is in in Tennessee. That's another festival mm. that might be a little closer. Coachella seems to me like a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, high end in terms of ticket prices, you know, Bonner yeah, or like still, Burning Man, still, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I've never been to Burning Man, by the way. Yeah. Neither <laughs> uh, have I, but I think it's more the Bonnaroo Festival in Tennessee is a little bit more kind of grassroots oriented. Okay. Uh, but, you know, after Woodstock, uh, that was things changed uh, drastically. So the, the this was the end of the 1960s, a very turbulent a time in history of uh, the last big festival um, in America uh, was the Altamont Festival. This was in California. And this was a festival that the Rolling Stones and the um, Grateful Dead had organized. And it was kind of like a, a festival uh, that the Rolling Stones wanted to thank their um, 
fans. And it was a very poorly organized festival. And tragically, a, a man was stabbed to death right in front of the stage where the Rolling Stones were playing. So here you had the, the peace and love of um, Woodstock. And then tragically, you know, that was the end of the innocence, if you will, of, you know, the, the tragic death of, a, of a, a concert goer right in front of the Rolling Stones. They, the Stones had no idea that somebody had been stabbed because right. the lighting was poor. And, you know, there's a movie that's out there that shows all of that. And and it wasn't until after that the Rolling Stones had realized that. So it was really the, the end of a generation, uh, uh, this kind of idealistic thing. Uh, Woodstock came to be um, with this peacefulness of so that and people that were able to congregate. And then you had, you had, uh, um, uh, you know, the death at that Altamont. So that was kind of right. the end. And, you know, festivals today, so they tried to rekindle Woodstock. It was like Woodstock 1995, uh, which notoriously had a lot of violence. People had set stuff on fire. And it was just, you know, the 180 degree uh, change from what uh, the original Woodstock was. So you could never recreate that. Uh, and it was right. th then it became more of a money thing, you know, but with Woodstock, they lost money. They, they, you know, they had promised, you know, for example, Creedence Clearwater Revival was a band and they were really big uh, in the late 60s. So they had they commandeered a fee of ten thousand dollars. Well, you know, there were like 25 different acts. The Grateful Dead played. Um uh, Jimi Hendrix played. So the, the event was supposed to end uh, a Sunday evening, but because of all of the rain, it just pushed everything back. So um, on the third day of the event, um, uh, music was still going on after midnight. So you, know, you were asking about another band that got famous with Sly and the Family Stone, which is another um, a band from San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Uh, they they that launched their career as well. And what was was interesting about that band is that they were made up of both, you know, uh, people of color and, and white skinned people, both male and female. So we had a, this great kind of chemistry in the band. Mm. Uh, Jefferson Airplane also played. They became Jefferson Starship after that. And it wasn't until um, uh, the, the third day. Uh, or the, the final day that that um, Jimi Hendrix finally came came out to play. Uh, this was nine o'clock in the morning on August 19th. So the event, as I said, was supposed to end on the 18th, but it went till the 19th. And then uh, at that at that point, most people had left and there were only about 40,000 people. Oh, left you got to stick crowd. it through. And look, it, look, that's a lesson yeah. for people to learn. You got to stay till the end. <laughs> right. Right. Um, well, they just had enough of being wet. You know, yeah. no, you know they didn't bring a change of clothes. Nobody had an idea uh, of, of uh, what what to expect there. People slept. Some brought their own little tents. Others just slept out on the on the hill you know, <laughs> in the rain. Sounds lovely. We'll be right back after this. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. From an iconic festival from the past to a notorious modern-day phenomenon, we did a deep dive into catfishing with the assistance of former national security cyber specialist at the U.S. Department of Justice, Ed McAndrew. 
Can you give me an instance maybe that you've been involved in, if you can share, where catfishing was legal and, and these things that you're saying, oh, I actually had to do this for my job kind of thing? Yeah. Let's, t- let's take the easiest instance I know of, and that's law enforcement agents engaging in catfishing, or as we would call them, undercover operations. Oh, there you go. Investigating crimes. So basically, catfishing is undercover work when it comes to law enforcement. Correct. It's court authorized or it's legally permissible undercover work that has as its objective investigating and ultimately prosecuting Internet based crimes. So in order to catch the catfish, you sometimes need to be the catfish. Ah, I see that's that's very interesting because obviously uh, catfishing has a negative connotation, which in this instance, I guess it still does because you are pretending to be someone so you can catch somebody. But the fact that law enforcement does it, it's it's a perfect example. I mean, um, you know, going undercover, it's kind of that's something that intrigues us about law enforcement in general is it, are things like that. That's what makes the movies right. <laughs> That's right. And if you, it, I'll, I'll take it back. I started in the Department of Justice in 2006 at a time where the what is now an epidemic of online child exploitation crimes was just beginning. And as social media took off, uh, one very disturbing thing that we saw were um, parents who were actually um, putting their minor children out there for sexual abuse, for money. Mm. Um And we developed online personas called undercover mothers, where the undercover mothers would actually pose as mothers willing to allow someone to engage in this behavior. Um, And then we would, you know, eventually conduct a sting operation where the defendant would show up somewhere and be arrested. Much like To Catch a Predator, uh, you may recall, was on TV way back when. Yeah, so is uh, uh, Catfish. That's also on. Have you seen it? Yeah. And that's and that's where the word, I think, really kind of comes from in this in this sense. Um, You know, if you go back to the documentary in 2010, I think it was that Nev Shulman was part of. And, you know, of course, it's now turned into just a great show on MTV. I think it's in its eighth year or eighth season. Um, That sort of conduct has been going on for as long as social media has been around, really, mm-hmm. as long as the Internet's been around and in, in other in other iterations before the Internet was around. So you can kind of play it forward from that documentary. And there was actually a there was a there was a portion of the documentary um, where the husband of the woman who had engaged in the catfishing scheme was talking about, you know, uh, the transportation of all things of cod from Alaska to China and saying, if you put catfish in these big vats of cod to keep them swimming around and moving, they stay agile and the meat therefore tastes better when they ultimately, or the fish tastes better when it ultimately is eaten. That was the idea that a catfish is someone who is deceptive, a fraudster, oh. nimble. That I see that answers all my questions because I was like, there are a lot of fish. Why a catfish? That makes no sense. But now you explained it. You you don't really think of the catfish as being a predator. The catfish is sort of like that, you know, slow moving fish with whiskers. 
It's like, well, yeah, it's got the little whiskers. <laughs> By the way, when you Google catfish, the actual fish doesn't even come up first. It's like the catfish, the TV show. <laughs> well, catfishing is now in the dictionary. Right. Internet impersonation. Like that's that's a new thing. Well, as as so. the Internet becomes more uh, prominent in people's lives, I guess catfishing probably does, too. I mean, they go hand in hand. Where where do you think catfish happens the most? I mean, obviously it happens online, but who is susceptible to being catfished? Uh, it's really interesting. If, if, if you if you think of the term broadly, almost everyone. Mm. Um, but if you think of it in a more narrow sense, it began with romance schemes and romance schemes that were, you know, being carried out for 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 you know criminal purposes to defraud people of money, or just romance schemes that were be carrying out that were being carried out by others who just maybe they had their own issues or maybe they were lonely and wanted to meet people on the internet. Whatever it was, these romance schemes seem to be where it started. Right. Right. We've seen it move. And the romance schemes, before I jump off of that point, it should be you know, noted, the FBI in 2021 put out data showing that uh, romance schemes, online romance schemes, had resulted in over a billion dollars, that's with a B, in losses and fraud losses where people were basically duped or emotionally manipulated into sending money to bad guys. Like the Tinder swindler. Correct. I watch a lot of Netflix documentaries. (laughs) If you you know, it's interesting. If you take a look at Netflix right now, there's an entire genre devoted to this type of conduct. And I think you're going to see more of it because we're all online. Mm -hmm. Um, This is not a problem that is really limited to particular types of people, particular areas of the country or the world. Um, It's widespread and it's very hard to detect in some instances. Well, what a year 2022 was, and I am so thankful to have spent this past year learning about and revisiting some of society's most discussed and thought-provoking topics. As we leave 2022 with hopefully more knowledge, I can't wait to explore a new range of topics with you all in 2023. If you'd like to hear the full interview of the topics we discussed on today's episode, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.